Hey everyone, it's Jacob here. Welcome back to another episode of the Law of Code podcast. This is the show covering the legal side of crypto, NFTs, DAOs, and any other blockchain related innovation. Anything mentioned in this episode by Jacob Robinson or his guests is not legal advice or investment advice. All opinions are Jacob's and his guests alone. Nothing discussed today should be relied upon for legal or investment decisions. This show is solely for information and entertainment purposes only. Jacob and his guests are not your lawyers, nor are they investment advisors. Please work directly with a lawyer or investment professional. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Law of Code podcast. My guest today is Michael Mosier. Michael is the general counsel at Espresso Systems, a scaling and privacy solution for Web3 applications. Michael was previously acting director as well as Permanent Deputy Director and Digital Innovation Officer of the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, that's FinCEN, a Bureau of the Treasury Department. As Acting Director, Michael oversaw FinCEN's wide-ranging work to promote financial integrity and national security. As Digital Innovation Officer, he was dedicated to advancing FinCEN's engagement with emerging technology and financial innovation. Michael was also the first in-house counsel at cryptocurrency analytics and investigations firm Chainalysis. Michael, welcome to the Law of Code podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Jacob. Great to be here. Yeah, this is awesome. Given your background in FinCEN, you've been at Capitol Hill for a long time. I'd love to hear where you were introduced to Bitcoin and what your initial impression was. Yeah, actually, I think it probably was around 2010, and I was transitioning from Treasury to Justice to the money laundering section, and, and but also working back with Treasury quite a bit. And, and Bitcoin came up, not surprisingly, in the money laundering section, you're always looking at what's the latest method of transferring value. Doesn't necessarily mean that it's it's anything bad, but it's just to see what's the latest thing. And we had some early e-gold sort of digital or non-cryptocurrency, but it's early digital value transfer cases too. And so we were just always trying to stay up with what's the latest innovation in value transfer to see what should we be worrying about, what should we not be worrying about, that sort of thing. And so Bitcoin naturally came up and also came up in the context of policy discussions in terms of there are there are also political dissidents under authoritarian regimes looking for ways to to transfer money. So it, I should say it wasn't like an, a, necessarily an alarm. It was more of a sort of this is really interesting and and is it going to take off sort of thing. Yeah, and I can imagine having seen e gold and and bit. I, I think it was bit gold as well before mm-hmm. by by Nick Szabo. There were a few innovations before Bitcoin. Had you, was there a difference you recognized with Bitcoin when compared to those earlier? digital asset innovations? Yeah, actually, that's a really interesting question. I think we there was a lot of discussion about the technical approach to Bitcoin and the sort of, and that there was so much thought behind the economic setup of it. And game theory is probably not the right term for it, but just the way that it was, that the, the community itself was, was building it up and thinking in incentive terms in a way that wasn't just, here's another way to move value. Like it was really an organizing principle and it sort of became a question of, okay, will it, will it hit a critical mass or not? But the technology was really interesting because cryptography itself was so at the core as opposed to just being about moving money. 
Right. So the previous iterations of digital assets that you would have looked at were more moving money based where this is essentially a network that was being built out. And that was that was a distinction that I'm sure must have been really interesting for, for someone with your background and, and seeing the possibilities here. Was there a moment where you began to recognize that, wow, this is actually going to be massive? Yeah, well, there was a point where it seemed like it was really it was sort of hitting the the scale that it might work, I guess you'd say, since it wasn't backed by anything. And it re- all of these value transfers only work to the extent that other people are willing to accept it in, in exchange for something. And it seemed like it was getting beyond a niche. It was, it was, it was getting out of like insider forums. And we had lots of technical experts that were really intrigued and interested in it and following it closely. Um, in, in not in a concerned way, but in a really just intrigued way. And it just became one of those things that you were getting into more and more frequently into conversations where it would come up, including at sort of, you know, White House National Security Council meetings where people would be just talking about emerging technology I and mean, it was coming up, but but not in a not in an anxious way, really more in a in an interesting way because of the dynamics that it raises of sort of it being decentralized, especially in the after it moved beyond the really early days where Yes, there's a lot of talk of decentralization, but it was it was a pretty small core group. And as it expanded out, it was like, wait, this really could this really could happen in an in a really interesting way for sure. Yeah, and it did. And and what what I found interesting about your bio was that you built a career in the public service sector. You started in the DA's office, continuing on to FinCEN. You got exposed to so many different levels of public service that most people don't understand or probably don't even know exist. Were there any learnings that that you took away or things you found surprising about work in public service? Yeah, I think part of it was just it, it's especially now being in in the private sector again, um, and maybe it's just being in the crypto space a little bit where things can can feel oppositional with governments at times. But I think it was just how the government was so not monolithic in, in the way that 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 industry is not all just Enron and Bernie Madoff or WR Grace, you know, dumping chemicals or whatever. That's what I've read. It's not my opinion. <laughs> not looking for a defamation case. But I think that there's a there's sometimes a sense that government's very monolithic and and it's just like a power trip or whatever. And I think the majority of people were are really qualified, smart people who are very mission driven and and sometimes they they don't want to they might even be looking at industry in a monolithic sense of like, hey, I'm not here to just sell stuff. I worked really hard because I want to make the world a better place. And I think there's a lot of that nuance that gets lost, particularly in DC, because there's a there's a very vocal minority of folks that might be in a political positions and have the microphone. You're the Gary Gensler or or Steve Mnuchin in the last administration. But meanwhile, behind them is like a thousand people who are who are not there temporarily and who are very mission driven and including like very, very pro innovation that see what's possible here, including people that have spent a career going after Bernie Madoff and Enron and these types of cases and or foreign kleptocrats and, and authoritarian regimes that that see something like a democratizing financial movement as like extremely positive. Yeah, there there are so many different regulators that touch crypto and, and so many different things to, to consider. And I think you're the first person I'm speaking to who's worked at FinCEN. 
I've heard the acronym many times. I understand what it stands for, but could you explain for those who don't know and, and partially for me, what FinCEN does and, and what the purpose of FinCEN is? Sure. Yeah. It, so FinCEN stands for the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, and it actually has two roles, which isn't always the case in, in the counterpart in other countries. But in the US, it is, on the one hand, the Financial Intelligence Unit for the United States, which is, which is sort of the clearinghouse for information that gets reported to the Treasury Department related to financial integrity under the Bank Secrecy Act. So that's your suspicious activity reports and currency transaction reports. So it's really has a job of protecting the information and also making sure that it is disseminated to the law enforcement folks that need to follow up on, say, Bernie Madoff or whoever, and working with the SEC and Justice Department and FBI and everyone else on corruption cases, that sort of thing. So making use of the information. And then there's the second role, which in some countries is in a separate entity that may even be under the Justice Department or the Treasury or other places. And that's being the steward of the Bank Secrecy Act and the chief anti-money laundering regulator. So you have other banking regulators that implement pieces of the anti-money laundering as part of their mandate on the prudential side and examinations, like for big banks and, and actually the SEC and the CFTC for their securities and commodities futures purview have AML aspects of it, but it that the Bank Secrecy Act itself um, is administered by FinCEN. And where where do you see FinCEN's role as it pertains to blockchain and crypto technology specifically? Where do you see that role now? And maybe where should that role be? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think, I think FinCEN actually was, I think by most accounts, the first global regulator to actually speak to digital assets authoritatively. And there was a 2011, FinCEN did a rulemaking related to digital assets. And then in, in 2013, provided the first major regulatory guidance on crypto, actually. And then in 2019, when I was there, we did a, a very comprehensive update on it. And I think part of, in not to, to contrast it too much with the SEC, but I think we took a position, I think appropriately, very early on that we should be providing guidance in this space because we want innovation to happen. And we do, there are a lot of positives about it and we should be guiding that in a way that's going to be constructive. And so part of the 2013 guidance and then 2019, where we felt like it was time, there's been enough evolution that we should provide more guidance was saying, here's some principles. This is different than what's came before in the way that prepaid cards was different than what came before and credit cards was different than cash and checks was different than cash, you know, and, and now it's time. And we made a point through, especially in the 2019 guidance, uh, which I worked on quite a bit, was to carve out developers also and to say, look, there's, yes, this is complicated because you have automated smart contracts and, and there's a lot of disintermediation, but like, let's, Let's also not overdo it, and and let's also be clear that that there's a First Amendment in the U.S. and and that also that we want financial technology to be built here in ways that people feel like they can be part of the building and not immediately on the hook for things that that others should play part in in guiding in terms of financial integrity. So I, so in that sense, like it, it's had a very foundational role from a currency and value transfer side and certainly has input with you know the securities and futures in terms of the AML but but you know what what 
is called a commodity or a security and where that line gets drawn is a is an ongoing conversation. I, I can imagine. And in terms of FinCEN's relationship with other regulators like the SEC and in administering the Bank Secrecy Act and, and conducting the AML aspects, what, what does that relationship look like and, and how do you ensure that or how does FinCEN and the individuals at FinCEN ensure that it's guidance as well as enforcement while protecting investors while also providing opportunity? Is that a consideration that that plays a big factor? Yeah, there's a lot of coordination. It's actually it's actually frustrating because you'll you'll hear from industry why isn't the government coordinating, giving clarity across everyone working together? When actually, I mean, when I was there, we would talk to SEC folks and CTC. Um, I mean, weekly for sure. Certainly at the technical expert level, there's a, there's an enormous amount of information sharing going on about what's technically happening, what's the latest thing, what are we seeing in terms of DeFi and and also the composition of stable coins, that sort of thing, risks, uh, and also opportunities. And, and, and even when we all have our versions of sort of innovation hubs. And so as folks are coming into us, sharing information of, of, hey, by the way, we're hearing a lot of this, but it sounds like it's your, in your area, or we're giving clarity on, on our aspect, but I think there could be more from, from yours, from what we're hearing, that sort of thing. And then certainly on the enforcement side, there's, there's overlap where there's, there's an AML component, but there's also a securities or futures component, like with BitMEX and, and cases like that, where we might see money laundering or something that, that put it on our radar, but actually it's primarily a market manipulation case or something and, and sending that over to them. So there's a lot of that work going on. And then certainly in something like the executive order that the Biden administration put out on digital assets, that's that sort of thing would be coordinated heavily across all the agencies. That's It's great to hear that all the agencies are talking. And I think that's such an important point. And like you said, a lot of people in crypto don't believe or don't, don't act as if that's not happening. One thing I wanted to touch on just about money laundering, I know FinCEN administers the the BSA, the Bank Secrecy Act, which was America's first and most comprehensive anti-money laundering statute. On March 2nd this year, the Treasury released new risk assessments for AML, finding that crypto's use in illicit finance is possible but minimal in practice. Why does the narrative persist that crypto and, and money laundering go hand in hand? Given your experience, you've been in those rooms. Why do you think that narrative persists? And is it only an excuse for financial surveillance? Yeah, I think it's a good question that's come up a lot. And I and it, it partly goes back to your prior question of, of about the coordination that's happening and the perception that, that there isn't that there's less of it happening than there is. And and part of that is that again, you have a very vocal minority of political appointees that might have the microphone at any given time. And, and they may not even be a political appointees. It could be elected officials in Congress who aren't even part of the executive that are, that are sort of using concerns that they're seeing that are anecdotal, that are not actually quantitative in any way, but they're, they're worried about the sort of worst case scenario. And I think there's, there's two scenarios that that comes up. One is sort of the pure, it's on the hill and and somebody has decided this is a talking point and they're they're extrapolating out worst case scenarios of well what about when isis doesn't have to cash out the fiat and because they've read an anecdotal report when the reality is if you're operating on the ground in syria i think 
probably your opportunity to buy a whole lot of stuff with Bitcoin, including fuel, tires, or Jeeps, uh, or whatever is probably pretty limited. But yes, it's, it's not impossible that we will someday get to a point of that, just like people say, what about when we have quantum computing? But I, I'm going to be a lot more worried about the, the front end to, the, to my online banking than I am the blockchain sooner. But I think, so, so some of that is just sort of people extrapolating out. Some of it is new politicals come in. And, and it's true in the very the first sort of 90 days of a new administration, political appointees are, are going to be most worried about what's the downside risk that's going to happen on my watch. And so the first things that they're briefed on are what could go wrong? What are the threats I need to worry about? And so I'm sure as part of that, you get into sort of here's emerging technology, here's what could happen, and they're looking at it. But but I think part of it is is that they need to step back and listen to the career folks who were saying, and I think, as you said, in the certainly in the financial integrity space, um, it's very quantitative. If anything, we have much better quantitative information about digital assets because of the public ledger than fiat, and, and it's quite clear. I mean, any statistics are complicated because if you look at some of the, the crypto crime reporting, the numbers of illicit have gone up, but also the non-illicit have gone up even more. And so as a percentage, it's actually... It's 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 almost infinitesimally small. I mean, we would we'd be ecstatic if fiat money laundering was one as quantifiable as 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 digital assets, and two was at the at the the small percentage. That, but you know, it's it's an exciting topic, and and people get excited about sort of thinking about worst case scenarios probably more than they should. So I I'm I'm hoping that that is starting to wane more and more, and I think we're we're seeing it. We're we're, we're I think. That narrative is is being exhausted. The cryptos for money laundering or sanctions evasion, which is just it just didn't happen and it's not happening. So I, I, I'm hoping that's the case. But but it's it's something we have to keep an eye on because I can say that now. And then if we get the mass adoption that we'd like, it could trend toward the the fiat world. And with regards to fiat, the the best uh, the best trait and the trait that people I think appreciate the most is the privacy. And in your bio on Twitter, you have the phrase privacy slash security, two sides of the same coin plus constitution, which I'd love to talk about. But at the Senate banking hearing on digital assets, you stated that, quote, we are sometimes talking about privacy like it's an obstacle, but privacy is part of the constitution as a matter of security plus personal sovereignty. That is not just something to slow down investigations. It's something we also want to protect vulnerable people, unquote. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think privacy is a really important thing. And as we get into a world where the possibility of central bank digital currencies are contemplated, privacy is going to continue to grow in importance. Could you explain your thinking with the, the Twitter bio and, and your statements regarding privacy? How is How do you think about privacy in the context of crypto? Yeah, I think it's critical. I mean, I think it's I think privacy, well, there's two aspects to it. One is, one is privacy in general, one is privacy as part of crypto. And I think in, in the general terms, the mission at FinCEN, which was, and this was what I considered it certainly when I was acting director, and this was very resonant with everybody there. And I think it's, even if new directors at some point disagree with me, I'm going to maintain the position. But, but FinCEN's mission is, is, it's not sort of maximizing information collection, it's countering exploitation. The point is not how much can we collect. That's a, that's a tool, not a mission. The mission is 
preventing people from becoming victims to begin with. And that's not necessarily information collection at all. That's dissemination of alerts and trends. And here's what we're seeing. But it's also helping people transact and have personal sovereignty in ways that is protecting them. And, and that, is, that is why privacy and security are two, two sides of the same coin. And, and this is something that we saw a lot in the COVID relief funding, where FinCEN coming out of that, we, we pushed and pushed harder for digital identity and better privacy in, in identity verification and credentials, because there was just so much credential stuffing and synthetic identities and identity theft and the number of people that, that, that are sending around their social security number just to get a different bank account is just creating, it's a vulnerability that you're creating, recreating every single time. And it was exasperated one because of increase in cybercrime during COVID, but also because the, the economic impact payments out, some banks had fed access and some didn't. And so people were changing banks to get the, to be able to get these payments, but it meant doing all this KYC all over again at, at another place and sending your social security number again, and or using your date of birth to log on to verify your credentials. Like we're, we're just putting too much out there. And so that was part of us repurposing some of our resources to get a dedicated digital identity person to drive that. And, and part of us, I, I set up a sort of spearheaded getting a, a privacy tech innovation hours going that was that was more than double oversubscribed, where we we encourage privacy tech folks to come in and talk to us about how do we get more privacy in the AML world? And it wasn't backdoors. It's, it's no, we, like zero knowledge proof verification and, and, and not having people redo KYC everywhere. I get it that people want to manage risk and KYC is a part of that. There's so much more to managing risk than just sort of what's your personal information. And, and there's a lot in there. And that's the ultimate mission of FinCEN is in, and, and the federal government, frankly, it's not it's not about enforcing and, and sort of avenging victims. It's preventing victims to begin with. And privacy is such a huge part of that from a pure security side. And then it's also just sort of the part of the founding of our country, which is very much sort of counter authoritarian and, and self-determination. And that's the mission that we should be promoting. We're, we're not just in a post 9-11 world anymore. We're, we're in a world where there's been a lot of authoritarian crackdowns all over the place. We've seen the vulnerability of our own system in, in different ways through the years. And so as a democracy, we, we should be protecting people's right to make personal decisions. And, and I think the, the last piece on that is just spending years as a, as a state and federal prosecutor working with victims of crimes. Like It cannot be the case that our, that our resources are focused on just sort of information collection and, and sort of avenging victims, it has to be on protecting people's self-determination and their privacy to make choices in ways that's not making them vulnerable because you are, you're never going to make somebody whole once they've, been a, once they've been a victim, even if you get the money back, which you're not going to undo that feeling of vulnerability and, and what's happened to them. Yeah, and, and the time as well and all the effort that goes into recouping the money and, and the surely the mental and physical toll it takes on people to go through things like that. And and when it comes to privacy and protection for individuals, crypto seems like such an important area and such an important innovation because it both enables and disables that privacy aspect. Are there things or where do you see the future of crypto going with regards to privacy? Are we going to have ZK proofs for every time you log into something? Will there be a government run zero knowledge proof? Will it be 
trending the same way it is now? What what do you see the future look like there? Yeah, I think it's going to be, I mean, I, I think it's going to be less government run in the sense that my hope for crypto is like one greater privacy, because I think uh, on some level we're, 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 we've overcorrected with the public ledger in terms of on the one hand, yes, there's a lot of, there's a lot of an ability to manage risk through looking at activity rather than identity, which is, which is definitely a positive and, and, and by the way, a better indicator too, given the ability to, to spoof identities, but there's a lot out there on the blockchain, like an incredible amount. And in, in fact, I, I mean, to me, privacy is the is the biggest issue that needs to be solved i mean I, I think in many ways but certainly in the blockchain space and and that's actually literally why i left government to join espresso systems which is which is a privacy tech company and, and people and cryptographers that are just incredible building greater optionality around privacy because i think uh, this goes back to the the idea that that one people should have options and optionality and self-determination to decide how they manage risk with each other. And then part of that is also your own risk tolerance of how exposed you want to be and not versus the sort of the world right now where you're either overexposed with sort of an Ethereum or sometimes Monero feels like it's a great, it's a great tool, but it, there are, there are some transactions where regardless of regulation, people just don't want to feel like they've left a paper bag full of cash on a park bench to buy their house. Like there, there's some things where I think you, you do want that that are not nefarious at all. And there's other things where you do want some sort of counterparty risk management. It's such an interesting area. And, and I want to talk about espresso systems, what they do and why you join. But one question before we get there is the idea of balancing privacy with the importance of knowing individuals. And, and one thing that's come up a lot on the podcast is the idea of DAOs and sufficient decentralization. And a consistent issue is how do you even know that it's sufficiently decentralized? There could be a million wallets held by one person. Based on your experience with money laundering and things like that, I can imagine there might be some similarities in gauging action that might be malicious or might be trying to go under the radar. How do you think about a solution to something like that? Is that something you've thought about? And and what what could people be considering there? Yeah, I think it's a I think it's a big issue that people are working through with some really interesting innovations, both in in cryptography and and governance systems. And I think this is where this was part of also Vincent bringing cryptographers to talk about what's possible, both from a zero knowledge proof verification standpoint, but also from a digital identity standpoint in terms of how uh, what are different ways to prove that this identity is the only one that's making this voting in this entire vote voting pool without disclosing who it is, because we actually don't really care whether that person voting is Peter Robinson or Jacob Robinson or, or whoever. We just want to make we want to know: Are you getting one vote, or are you or have you manipulated the system in that you're taking more than you should? And and I think that's there's that technical identity and and cryptography aspect to it. And then there's the governance piece with quadratic voting and other types of voting that are looking to to also manage sort of disproportionate power consolidation in ways that may actually not even be about identity at all, which is also really, really interesting. I mean, I think that's part of the sort of incredible movement around this sort of cryptography and governance innovation is that 
it's like we're looking for technical solutions to policy issues like this, like consolidations of power, abuse of power, exploitation, but also in the human organizational aspects of it. And you you made a big career move moving from public service to crypto. Why were you confident in making the move first to Chainalysis and now to Espresso Systems? Yeah, I don't I don't know if I was confident or reckless, but it was it was I was inspired um, by sort of the advancements in this this technology that was providing what appeared to me at the time and still does is a very democratizing technology, which which actually in I guess in terms of confidence of of having relevant experience was like this counter exploitation was very much what my career was involved with the whole time. And so this, it resonated sort of immediately. And I think for chain analysis, it was this idea that, that folks want to, they do want to manage counterparty risk and have a sense of, is the market being manipulated? Am I taking on the risk if I'm running a platform that, that, that it, it's whether it's regulatory risk or it's not regulatory risk, it's just business risk that there are people that just don't want to be in the pool. If it's, if it's a hacker who just exploited another another party. And so I think finding ways to continue innovating with that and also working with them on on sort of privacy protocols and and how to how do we maintain privacy in this space too and and to whom do we sell that sort of thing was really interesting like from a legal and and also a, a sort of personal rights perspective and understanding the technology as well as possible and then I think espresso systems I think reflected that sort of the evolution over time of where in the beginning, I think it was really all about managing risk in many ways to make sure this thing didn't go sideways. And then I think as time has gone on, it's it's now to me, the most important issue is privacy and sort of, okay, what's the overexposure here? Um, in many ways, the transparency is a positive, but but there's there's there are a lot of very legitimate reasons that people need a, a greater sense of privacy and also optionality. The, the, the Ethereum to Monero spectrum is, a, is actually a pretty wide spectrum and, and giving people a lot more nuance in there, I think is really important. And so where do you see Espresso Systems fitting in? Is there a problem that you see Espresso Systems solving? And if so, what is that problem and how do they go about solving it? Yeah, I think that's a great, that's a, yeah, I think that for, to me, the, the problem that Espresso Systems is solving is that configurable privacy that gives people optionality. So it's not, you're either overexposed with Ethereum or it, it may feel like a, a brown paper bag of cash on a park bench with Monero. And by the way, I'm a huge, I'm a, I'm a fan of Monero. I think it's, it's fantastic. And actually one of our Co-founders Benedict Boons created Bulletproofs, which is foundational to Monero. So we ha- we have a lot of a lot of appreciation for Monero, and, and 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 we're not looking to be an Ethereum killer or a Monero killer in any sense. Like the the point here is to give people optionality between those two poles. And so what we're building is is sort of a platform that will enable configurable privacy for digital assets, and also integrating into that a high throughput, low cost truly decentralized ZK rollup that will give scalability. And because I think we think privacy and scalability are the two big pain points right now for, for digital assets. And, and so that's what we're looking to solve. So yeah, actually the short answer is we're solving private, looking to solve optionality around privacy and scalability. And I think that's, that is the big problem right now. 
Yeah, I agree. And and that's a massive problem. Is there is there an aspect of that that you find personally rewarding or something like what what why join espresso systems? I understand you recognize the importance of privacy, but I can imagine there are other companies doing it. Why specifically join espresso system and what gets you excited about the team? Yeah, I think the the I was looking through different privacy projects out there, but but to me it was really the resonance with the team that the, the the co-founders and and the folks that they brought on have just been incredible. Ben Fish, Benedict Boons, and Charles Liu are coming out of Stanford's PhD cryptography program. I and mean, Jill Gunter it came out of Slow Ventures. And 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 to me, I think it's always a good sign when someone from the VC says, actually, I want to go in and be the chief strategy officer. <laughs> that's, that's quite an endorsement beyond money. I and mean, Jill's just like absolutely brilliant. And Ben, Charles, and Benedict are as well. And they've attracted a team that is both sort of likewise brilliant on the cryptography and the engineering, but it's also everyone's very grounded in this sense of, of non-dogmatic optionality and what's really going to work. And so, yeah, it's not maximalism in some certain way. It's like, Hey, actually people should have choices. And so, and that was the big resonance with, with all of them was sort of, look, look, we're just trying to build it so that people can make these decisions and they can say, we're going to have configurable privacy and, and we're going to continue to create more and more and more options around this so that people can decide for DAO, this could be used for DAO voting, um, where it's not going to reveal what address is voting, but it might do a zero knowledge proof that it's not voting twice or that it's not this other address as well and counting it in ways or that that you can selectively reveal your credential verification to one entity but not another and so i think this this i really resonated with this idea of it's not just sort of a one sort of dogmatic thing it's just it's empowering people to have that sort of optionality for themselves the ability to choose is so valuable and and giving people an option to have privacy in a transparent ledger while not losing the security is so valuable. And I'm glad to hear Espresso Systems and seems like an incredible team and so many smart people are working on this problem. How do you see something like Espresso Systems coalescing with government regulation and government requirements when it comes to money laundering? Yeah, I mean, this was, was I think that's a great question because that's the, one of the other attractiveness of it was that it also wasn't just sort of the next regulated thing and it wasn't a compliance project. Like I, I did not want to join a compliance project because I think there's plenty of other experts out there that do that. And, and my goal was to push policy forward and to advance the way folks are thinking about it. And I think that's where Espresso comes in, in terms of, of having a way to show regulators, look, people can manage risk in a lot of different creative, from a technically technical perspective and a governance perspective in ways that are not like the traditional system. And so we want to show you what's possible as technical solutions to policy issues, rather than you don't even need to do the policy work. Let us do the technical solutions and, and we'll show you that there's ways to manage risk in a private way with zero knowledge proofs. Um, but also that that trading pools can rethink, like for the SEC, do you really need to be creating, trading everybody like a broker dealer and having all these registrations and doing KYC 
if we can actually just sort of manage risk in other ways that are privacy preserving. And my hope is that that part of this is also showing people that there's all these ways to manage risk that doesn't require collecting identity at all, actually. And I think that was really the appeal of this is that we can try to build ways that are really different. It's not just pushing everything back to the horseless carriage era on things, but it's actually rethinking the way we're, we're approaching risk and, and, and optionality for people. That is so exciting. Uh, it, when problems like that start to be solved, we are in for some exciting times because there there's some major pushbacks that people have on crypto, and that's definitely one of them. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Oh man, I'm I'm so glad to hear hear that. One other one other thing I, I wanted to ask you about Espresso Systems was where your role fits in. Like, I'd love to know where someone who comes from a public service background have has experience at Chainalysis. Where do you? What does your day to day look like? <laughs> it's a it's a it varies widely depending on what where we are thinking through whether it's like today actually was was thinking through privacy policy in terms of service for the for the website and the and for the graphic user as we set up a test net but it's 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 phenomenally fun in that last week we were talking through for proof of stake what sort of token would would we would we envision that would that would create the utility and and allow for people to secure the network in the way that it should but that we're navigating whatever sort of saber rattling is happening from certain agencies and also what's what's aligned with sort of our own ethos as well and how do we build privacy into that and then having that conversation with the cryptographers and the engineers that if this is the way we want to have any piece of the the network operate or the optionality we want to create maximum optionality for people and is there a line at what optionality should we should we offer on this should we offer total anonymity or not and that's that's a really multifaceted conversation that's what's technically possible in terms of thresholds um, zk proofs What's, what's possible with ZK proofs in ways that have the speed and the scalability that people need, but then also like, where do we want to be from a business perspective, from a risk perspective, from a regulatory perspective, and that regulatory perspective might be the US, but it might be Europe, which, and, and certainly Asia and, and Africa and South America, but Europe in particular right now is sort of having an odd sort of, for the home of GDPR, they're they've gone sort of full bore against privacy a little bit in the crypto space. That's been surprising, but but hopefully there's going to be some good dialogue on that. But how does that fit into our product as we're building it and also the 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 use cases that we're that we're coming up with? It's exciting. And an important point you underscored on the the previous answer is just tech building a technical solution to what's currently a government tell what's currently a governmental and regulatory problem. And we're seeing similar things. I think we will start to see with the SEC in their role in in mitigating information asymmetry, where they just want to protect investors. It shouldn't be all about enforcement. It's more so just how do we put the investors and the company or the business on equal playing fields? And if there's decentralized solutions or technical solutions, given an immutable blockchain, there should be some answers there. Are there any other specific projects in the crypto, NFT, or DAO space that you're really excited about or keeping a close eye on? 
Yeah, and I think it actually it, it it goes right with what you were just describing, Jacob. I think there's some really interesting risk management innovation that 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 we're watching. Well, certainly I am and, and talking to our technical experts to better understand what's possible out there. But I think the risk management space right now is is has been phenomenal in what's being developed as people look at sort of the rug pulls and the exploits and the market manipulation and the hacks that have been happening. Like I think there's there's now a really meaningful approach to technical solutions to that. And and part of what's great about it is it's not really it's not just because a regulator said so. It's like it's industry itself just saying this protocol is not going to work if everybody's worried about it being exploited. What can we come up with on our buyer? And to me, that's the most exciting also in pushing the regulatory perspective forward, because in so many ways, the regulators hook and, and sort of obligation is dealing with risk. And if we're removing risk ourselves in really creative ways, then then the sort of the need for them to jump in is is greatly reduced. And And frankly, they've got plenty to do. So I think they're going to be, they're going to be okay moving on. But I think there's a lot of interesting stuff with like Forda and lossless protocol and web and silo has, has done some of this. But I think there's, there's just so much in the sort of like network agents that are using scripts to monitor smart contracts and protocols and, and sort of anticipate exploits before they happen, see the smart contracts loading before they exploit a pool and are able to take action. And I think that sort of risk management space that that is industry advancing the technology in ways that's also protecting people, but it's also in ways that actually optimizes what's possible from the technology. It's not just sort of like, oh, okay, well, then we we put the intermediary in and the intermediary connects KYC and whatever. Like it's actually maintaining the sort of the decentralized ethos, but it's also doing it in a way that's actually more, like literally more effective than the traditional finance sector is is really exciting. It's amazing what the ability to deploy an immutable contract can have. It's just so valuable and immutable smart contract and, and program really that can operate in a verifiable, transparent and consistent manner that the, the ability to trust and create cooperation because of that is incredible. And I'm so excited for what's ahead in the space. And given the prices today, I think we're in the building stage, not the the money raising stage at, at the moment. But to, to switch gears, and, and this will be the last uh, two questions for you, I'd love if you could ex- talk about or share any advice you were given early in your career that helped shape who you have become today. Yeah, I think I think probably the some of the best advice was just sort of to to stay curious and and never stop learning. And I think that's particularly critical right now cuz the world is changing so so incredibly fast and it's not just a matter of sort of being left behind or something like that. It's it's more that you might miss something that's absolutely incredible that you might really click with, like the democratizing opportunity of helping anti-authoritarian technology or access to, to civil rights in new technical ways to solve problems like zero knowledge proofs and immutable ledgers and uncensorable transactions, like all those things that are not just a matter of something Instagram or something, nothing against Instagram, it's fine. But, uh, but it's, it's like, no, wait a minute, like we we're we here's this technology that can that can provide aid to 
healthcare workers in Venezuela under an authoritarian regime. And geez, that's what I want to do with my life. There's just that sort of hum- humility to, to constantly and relentlessly be curious and exploring stuff and chasing rabbit holes that, that, that are just sort of what you might want to do or, or just seem curious, I think is the, is, has been the most helpful because early on, a lot of the stuff was just sort of something out there. And even all the, the risk management tools that I mentioned before are not directly something that I need to do for my current job. But, but I think it's just, it's that sort of to be constantly amazed and never jaded, <laughs> I think is, a, is the right place to be because there's just so much incredible innovation happening. And, 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 and it could be, it could, drastically change your life to to say wait a minute what's this thing lossless protocol actually i'm gonna like that's where i want to go work or something like there's just so much and and you might be the person that's like actually forget it there's that thing that's a hundred times better and i've got an idea and by the way like we're gonna change the corruption is is handled in in an authoritarian regime and prevent something really bad from happening like i i just think that that and, and and obviously from every public service job I had, it was, it was that your job is to do the right thing and not, not to win. And I think that dovetails with it too, which is with all this technology, what's the right thing? It's not about just making money. It's like, how do we do this in a way that's going to, that's going to be a foundation that is the, is the actual ethos of all of it, which is democratizing opportunity for people. I love it. And Michael, last question for you. Are there any habits that you've built or cultivated throughout your career that have helped you be successful and that you found particularly either rewarding or created opportunities in the future? Yeah, I think it is that sort of that curiosity habit that like constantly, I mean, really throughout government, I would get up around 3.30, 4 a.m. usually and and just get into searching the web for what's the latest innovation in whether it's like moving value or 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 then it was like blockchain or identity issues or zero knowledge proofs like taking a I took a course in cryptography took a course in blockchain technology like it, I think it's you have to be the habit of curiosity is is I think the really one of the most helpful because you're 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 constantly letting yourself go from one thing to the next. And that's how you discover things. I I never would have discovered, well, I wouldn't have discovered crypto. I would have just been doing my cases. I was doing a lot of kleptocracy and counter-corruption cases for a while and human trafficking, money laundering cases that were keeping me plenty busy, but wouldn't have discovered crypto in the potential that it was other than a money laundering tool. It's chasing all that down that I think is where you get to what's the positive innovation in ways that you could never even think about. And I think that's that's where we should be. 3.30 in the morning, that's pretty early. But I think an important point on, on what you said is you made the time for your curiosity. Not only did you have these particular interests outside of your day-to-day job, you woke up, you made the time to do them. And I don't think I've ever woken up at 3.30, but good for you for being able to do that. Yeah, I don't recommend it. That 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 time is not a good habit, I will say. <laughs> but it, it's a clear time to think where nothing's coming in, incoming. And there was certainly days with the National Security Council and, and other things happening where you were you had one window until about 7 a.m. max where you weren't going to be interrupted. And from there, 
from there on, you're done. The time wow. is not your own. <laughs> Talk about playing offense in life, Michael. That That's incredible. And thank you so much for spending the time speaking with me today. I really enjoyed this. I think people will get a really good idea of FinCEN and, and your role and, and how that how we should be thinking about privacy in the future. And I'm excited for what's to come. So thank you so much for joining me. Likewise. Thanks for having me on, Jacob. It's it's, it's such a thoughtful way to to keep this innovation going from a philosophical and legal perspective. So I, I, I'm an avid listener and I appreciate it. I'm glad to hear it. Thanks again. Okay. Thanks.